This is the third part of the story of the Garden of Eden. If the first episode was setting the stage, and the last episode was the crime, this one is the trial. This is Memories of Eden, Part 3. James Roos was born in southwest England, outside Launceston, a small town in Cornwall, on August 9, 1759. His early life seems pretty uneventful. All we know is that he was trained as a farm worker. The next time he shows up in the records is just before his 23rd birthday in July of 1782. It's then that he's charged with breaking into the house of Thomas Olive and stealing various items, including two silver watches. Roos was caught and taken to Bodmin, a town of maybe 200 houses and 2,000 inhabitants that was 20 or 30 miles from where he was born. And it was there that he was put in prison to await trial. As far as jails go, Bodmin Jail wasn't a terrible prison for the time. It was actually fairly new, only three to four years old, and its design used the ideals of John Howard, a prison reformer. It separated serious offenders from those who'd only committed minor offenses or people in prison because of debts. It was designed to allow light and air in to make the prison a healthier place compared to others of the day. There was hot water, there was a chapel, there was a place for sick prisoners, there were individual sleeping cells. But maybe all of this was a small comfort to James Roos. Because he was accused of burglary. And it's not clear. We don't know the evidence they had against him. We don't know if he was caught red-handed with those two silver watches. But if the accusations were true, if he was found guilty, Roos had stolen 110 times the amount of value that was required to warrant the death penalty. If he was found guilty, the sentence was a foregone conclusion. He would be hung by the neck until dead. Roos was put in prison, and there he awaited trial. The judge only visited Bodmin probably four times a year, so Roos had maybe six weeks, maybe a month and a half, to think and imagine his fate. Try to put yourself in his shoes. What would you feel if you were sitting there ticking off the days until your trial? Would it be guilt? Would you be afraid? Would it be fear that you were feeling? Maybe it would be despair. Maybe it would be anger. What would be your mental state as you waited and watched each day go by, knowing that you were getting closer and closer to that trial, closer to that noose? Imagine sitting there, knowing the judge was coming. That's pretty much where Adam and Eve are. They're sitting in Eden, the evening light is fading at the end of the day, and they feel a cool breeze. And even though it's probably tropical, I can picture them shivering, shifting back and forth and rustling on those rough fig leaf clothes, the little hairs making their skin itch. I can see them looking at the quick haphazard stitching they used to hold the leaves together when they were trying to cover themselves up. And then I can see them just sitting there, waiting, waiting for what they know is going to happen. Their paradise might as well be a jail cell. They probably want God to show up so it can all be over, but they're also afraid of what will happen when he does. 
The last episode ended when Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden. The verb used there in Genesis means something like walking for pleasure. And it says that it happened in the cool of the day, literally the wind or breeze of the day. And you get the idea that this was a standard thing, that God regularly came in the evening for a visit. And I don't know what the sound was that they heard, but I guess that Eden had nice grass. So you can imagine it being something like the sound of someone walking softly through that. And even though they're waiting for this, even though their fig leaf clothes are all ready, from the way the story is told, you get the sense that they suddenly realize one layer of leaves, one layer of camouflage, is not enough. Because when they hear the sound, they hide in the woods. This is not a rational choice. They can't escape. They can't hide from the God who made the planet. But in this situation, they might not be making rational choices. They're doing what you do when panic sets in. It's almost a fight-or-flight response. You can imagine their heart pounding, them breaking into a cold sweat. They're doing whatever they have to to stay alive for even a few more minutes. And Genesis says they hide themselves among the trees of the garden. And you get this image of them slipping behind a tree or trying to lay low, trying to duck beneath the ferns and bushes, trying to disappear. On a normal day, on all the other days when God probably visited the garden, they most likely ran to meet him. So this is different. This is unusual. God calls out and asks where they are. And I don't know if Adam answers because you can't ignore a question from God. Or if in that question, Adam didn't hear what he expected to hear. I wonder if he didn't hear anger. In any case, Adam answers when God calls, and this is the beginning of a conversation that no one likes to have. Adam calls out and says that he's hiding because he's naked. If you go back to the second chapter of Genesis when Adam and Eve were created, it says they were both naked and unashamed. But ever since they ate from the tree, they feel exposed. They realize nothing stands between them and a perfect God. God asks Adam how he knows he's naked, asks if Adam ate from that one tree he wasn't supposed to. And if you look it up, various commentaries and places in the Bible make it clear that God already knew the story. So it's not that he didn't know what was going on. This was him giving Adam a chance to confess. This was God giving Adam and Eve a chance to explain themselves. It's a little like a court case. This was their chance to plead guilty or not guilty. Maybe there was a pause. We don't know. But in his next response, Adam comes clean. He admits he ate the fruit, but he admits it with a twist. In the last episode, when Eve brought him the fruit, Adam may have had all these noble motives about caring for Eve and not wanting to be separated from her. And if those were the reasons he ate the fruit, they're out the window now. Because Adam's confession starts with blaming Eve. He says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. This is not your best confession. If you break it down, Adam blames God for putting Eve there, then Eve for bringing the fruit. He's almost saying, 
if you hadn't put her here, I wouldn't have done it. You could claim Adam's saying he didn't know what the fruit was, but Adam is admitting he ate it. He's just trying to avoid responsibility for it. Adam blamed Eve, so now God turns to Eve, and with such a great example, Eve does the same thing. She admits she ate it, but she says it's because the snake lied to her. The word Eve uses to explain what the snake did is usually translated deceived or beguiled. But it can also be translated that the snake caused her to be led astray or caused her to forget. It's like she's saying the snake somehow mesmerized her until she forgot she was breaking God's law. In essence, Eve is saying it's true that she ate, but it wasn't her fault. If you take a step back and look at this confession, you can see Eve doing the same thing Adam did. You can see this indirect way she might be blaming God. The snake was an animal, right? God made the animals, right? Neither Adam or Eve take the blame. They don't really want to be at fault. They want to say that God's at fault because God set up the circumstances with this tree in the garden. Think about that for a minute, because they're both blaming God for giving them freedom of choice. They're blaming him for letting them make their own decisions. These first humans are not the greatest role models. They're supposed to be the rulers on earth, but they can't control themselves. And they're blaming God for giving them the opportunity. This is it. This is where the story should end. We're about 10, 11 minutes into the episode, and this should be the end of it. The Bible itself should consist of only three chapters. Creation, a brief time in paradise, and then the extinction of humans. It wouldn't be a book so much as a pamphlet. Adam and Eve have confessed to committing the only crime they could commit. They've pled guilty to eating from the one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And this is where they should die. They rejected the source of life. They picked death. The story should end here. I mean, we know it didn't end. The story got to us today, but hindsight is twenty twenty. We know the history. But we take it for granted that it didn't end. And we forget that it should have. You have to go back and picture living in that moment with them. Picture being someone who doesn't know the future. From their perspective, this is it. Things should end right here. Like that court case I've been referring to, they've confessed, they've pled guilty, and now it's time for sentencing. And they know that death is the punishment. And that's what makes this next part interesting. Because the sentencing isn't what you would expect. Adam and Eve have confessed. But God doesn't talk to Adam and Eve. He turns to the snake and talks to it. The snake started the temptation, so it deals with the first results. God says that among animals, the snake will be cursed to crawl on its belly and eat dust. In the last episode, I talked about stories of these fantastic snakes you hear about in legends around the world. There were stories where the snakes had wings or feathers, where their scales glittered. I talked about dragon stories. They were all descriptions of this beautiful, incredible animal. 
And we don't know what version is right. There's a lot of variation. Some dragons show four legs, some have wings and only two legs. But whatever it was, whether it was legs, they were now gone. Whether it was wings, they disappeared. Whatever made the snake attractive was stripped away. And I need to make a distinction here between the snake, an animal God is talking to, and Lucifer, the rebelling angel who used the snake as a tool. People get confused about why God punished the snake if it was just a dumb animal. But then if you look at the history, you find examples where tools, where the weapon used in a crime, gets the same punishment as the criminal. You can see this in laws later in the Bible where animals bear responsibility for their actions. If a bull gored someone, it had to be killed just as if a human had done it. John Chrysostom, a Christian preacher and archbishop from Constantinople around 400 AD, talks about how a sword or dagger might get broken in two after being used for a murder. It's like you want to make sure it can never be used again. But that's only part of the story. Because when the sword is broken, it's also symbolic. Everything that happens to that tool, to the snake, is an example of what will happen to Lucifer. Lucifer is the one being cursed here. And now take a step back and remember that Adam's standing there. Adam's watching all of this. Adam's listening to all of this. And he knows that it was his job to be the protector, the keeper, the guardian of the earth. And it's only because he failed that this once beautiful animal is being stripped of everything that made it beautiful. It's a little microcosm of the consequences of Adam's choice. At some level, what happens to the snake right here is a symbol of what's happening to the whole world. The snake becomes a symbol of sin. God curses the snake, and this might be where snakes become what we think of today. This might be where they become the flat-headed reptile with the vertical pupils and the eyes that don't seem to blink. God curses the snake and says that the snake and Eve would always be enemies, and that their descendants would be enemies too. Between these two things, this symbol of the effect of sin and making humans and snakes enemies, this is where the fear of snakes, ophidiophobia, this is where that began. If you needed some logical reason to dislike snakes, this is it. In one study published in 2001, college students were asked to rank pictures by how dangerous they thought the thing in the image was, and they consistently ranked pictures of spiders and snakes as more dangerous than mammals or fungi. Later, scientists went and tested six-month-old babies to see how early this reaction shows up, and they found that the baby's pupils were more likely to dilate when looking at snakes or spiders compared to the fish and flowers they used as control images. It's a six-month-old, so they can't say the babies were feeling fear, but rather it was a stress response, a sign of intense focus. These studies lumped spiders and snakes together, so I dug a little deeper and I found polling data from Gallup in the U.S., where in both 1998 and 2001, they asked people to say what they were afraid of and had separate spider and snake categories, among a few other choices. From all of the options, fear of snakes topped the list, with about half of people saying they had it. It beat public speaking, fear of heights, and claustrophobia, with fear of spiders and insects only coming in fifth, with around a third of people picking it. 
It's true, not everyone is afraid of snakes, but it's a common enough, a universal enough fear that there are articles trying to figure out how this fear of snakes evolved. In your own mind, go back over the images you've seen of snakes in your lifetime. Maybe it was something in the wild, maybe it was something in a zoo, maybe it was just a snake on TV. But think of those images and see what your reaction is. Think of where you've seen pythons wrapping around something or rattlesnakes tucked into the shadows in a crevice in the rocks. Remember those snakes you've seen climbing trees and hanging from branches with their tongue flicking in and out. Imagine water snakes. That's a good one. Everyone loves the idea of snakes in the water. For about half of people listening, those memories, those images you brought to mind, those are pictures that they're afraid of. And this is where all those human fears began. But buried in that comment, and you wonder if Adam and Eve caught it as God said it, buried in that comment that humans and snakes would be enemies is something that Adam and Eve probably didn't expect to hear. God refers to their kids. Remember, Adam and Eve know they're going to die. That was the stated consequence of eating the forbidden fruit. It's not much, but this is the first clue that Adam and Eve have a future. After losing his rebellion in heaven, Lucifer's backup plan involved getting Adam and Eve to betray God. And this is the first clue you get that God had a backup plan too. When God created Adam and Eve, he wanted them to be his friends. And he wasn't going to give up on that friendship unless they were determined to end it. So, still speaking to the snake here, God starts talking to Adam and Eve. And now, maybe because of that reference to their kids, maybe they're listening even more closely to everything he says. And God lays out his plan. God says that humans and snakes will be enemies, but that one day the snake will strike a man's heel. But that man, and the reference here is singular, it refers to only one of their children, that man would crush the snake's head, would crush Lucifer. It would be 4,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but this is the first glimpse humans get of how God planned to save them. I don't know how to describe the feeling Adam and Eve must have right here. They have every reason to assume God is mad at them, that he's angry they betrayed him. They probably have this terrible blend of despair and guilt and fear and depression. But the first thing God does is give them hope. He gives them something to look forward to. I don't think all the negative feelings went away. I don't think Adam and Eve felt good at this point. But I do think they felt relief. Everything was still bad. They'd still failed. But now there was a hint of a second chance. That's the last thing God says to the snake. And now he turns to Adam and Eve, and he explains to them how the world will change. Creation was designed to be a world that Adam was in charge of as a servant of God. But Adam had surrendered that title. And now the whole world was ruled by Lucifer. And God starts describing what life will be like under their new ruler. And it's important to point out here that God cursed the snake. But he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. Instead, God starts talking about consequences. God, who designed the world, who made it perfect, now has to tell them how it'll fall apart. 
For Eve, God said he would make it more painful to have children. And I'll admit, this seems like a curse. You could see how this seems vindictive. I hunted around to figure out how this was just a consequence, and this is speculation, but a couple of ideas came up. About God making it painful, you can see this as either God adding pain, which seems vengeful, or as him no longer stopping it, as him allowing it to happen. This type of phrasing, where it says that God does something when he really allows it to happen, is used a few other places in the Bible, so that's probably what's going on here. And as for increasing the pain, it could be that in Eden, labor, giving birth, might have been more about pressure than pain. It could be that with a perfect body, Eve's ligaments were more elastic, more able to stretch and rebound. And after sin, as the human body aged and broke down, as people got less healthy generation by generation, things were more fragile, less able to take the stress of labor, less able to heal after it. What was once stretching became tearing. Pressure became pain. That's one part of it. That's an increase in physical pain. But there's also another idea. Because having children isn't just about childbearing, it's also about child raising. Beyond labor, there's the psychology and stress of having kids grow up in a sinful world. And this fits with another way that verse can be translated, which instead of using the word pain, says that sorrow would increase. Future children, Eve's kids, wouldn't be born in a safe world. It would be a world of injuries, of uncertainty. It would be a world where people got hurt and died. Eve would have that pain of never knowing if her children were safe or if they were making good choices. As a direct consequence of sin, in the future, raising kids would involve worry and anxiety. Pain with having children was the first consequence. The second one was that Adam was now in charge. Back during creation, Eve was made as Adam's partner, his equal. She was made from Adam's rib. She was meant to work side by side with him. And I know this sounds chauvinistic, because it's easy to point out that Adam made the same mistake. But like I talked about in the last episode, the Bible says that Eve was tricked, but Adam wasn't. This isn't just a punishment for the sake of punishment. There's a practical reason. In a world of arguments, in a world where Adam and Eve wouldn't always agree, there had to be some executive. Someone had to be in charge. Someone had to make the final decision about things. And that said, God turns to Adam. He says that now Adam would have to work for his food. Before, in the Garden of Eden, the plants grew so easily. But that wouldn't be the case anymore. God gave plants the ability to adapt and protect themselves, to grow thorns and needles. And Adam would have to weed and hoe and tend his garden, or these other plants would choke out the food he needed to survive. And to get a sense of just how much harder life was going to be, God tells them they'll have to change what they eat. Originally, at creation, God gave them fruits, grains, and nuts. But now God adds herbs, the grasses, maybe the vegetables, to their diet. It was food that was originally only for the animals. This might be because the herbs would supply something they used to get from the tree of life. Or maybe it was because otherwise, they wouldn't have enough food. This is the second and last time God curses something in this story. To Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In other places, it translates that as for your sake. As hard as it is to see things this way, this curse was a blessing in disguise. Working to get food would keep Adam busy. There would be no time to listen to whatever Lucifer had to say. It would help him focus, help him stay true to God, help him keep his eye on that promise of a second chance. God finishes by telling Adam that he will work until he dies. He was made from dust, and he'll turn back into dust. It's not a threat. It's a statement. It's a cause and effect. In the last episode, I compared it to unplugging a lamp and letting the light go out. Adam let go of God, and eventually his light would go out. When I picture the scene of that last statement, I imagine God finishing what he's saying and everything in the garden going quiet. Adam and Eve are silent and thinking, thinking about the results of their choice. And it's not just punishment of them. All of nature is affected here. Eve's children will suffer. Serpents, those beautiful animals, will now be despised. Plants will have thorns. Food will be hard to get. It's bad enough when you feel guilt or shame or fear about being punished for your own actions. But what about when something you did hurt someone else? All the animals, the plants, the people, the whole world would suffer for what they did. This is where you'd expect despair to take over. This is where Adam and Eve should be crushed by the guilt of what they've done. But instead, you get what I think is Adam's best moment in the whole story. Because in that pause, right after he's found out that he's going to die, you see him go back past all of the bad news about thorns and how it'll be hard to get food, back past the comments about life having pain, and back to that promise that there will be a victory someday. Because here Adam names his wife Eve. I've called her that this whole time. But this is where Adam gives her that name. He names his wife Eve, and it means the living one, because she would be the mother of their Savior. That is faith. Trusting in God's promise, even in the worst moment. We don't know how much of the story God told Adam and Eve. We don't know if they realized that it would be God's own son who came as their Savior, or if they knew that God's son would die in their place. But they did get one more clue about what the Savior would do. Because looking at those fig leaf garments they were still wearing, God shows them that fig leaves weren't enough. Separation from God brought death. Their salvation would be based on a substitute. Something had to die to cover their nakedness. So as a symbol, God made them clothes from animal skins. This was an object lesson. It was a visual aid to help them understand God's backup plan. That savior they looked forward to, he would be their substitute, and those skins were a symbol that someday he would cover up their sin and bridge that gap back to friendship with God. That symbolic sacrifice was something they could hold on to, something they'd repeat, and it was a way of showing their faith in God's promise. At the end of the story, Adam and Eve have to leave Eden. Now that life involved pain and suffering, God wasn't going to let it go on forever. He wasn't going to let them eat from the tree of life because that life would be a curse. 
He wasn't going to make them spend eternity in misery. So God sends them out of the garden, and the way back is blocked. Catch this part of the story, though, because the description of what happens here is interesting. On the east side of the Garden of Eden, Genesis says that God, quote, placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim is the plural form of cherub, a class of angels. They show up a few places in the Bible. You find them in Exodus, you find them in Solomon's temple, you find descriptions of them in the book of Ezekiel and in Revelation. But in every case where you find them, it's always the same context. They are always the angels surrounding God's throne. And that makes you look a little closer at the other part of the description. Because if you go back to the original language, the term is not a flaming sword, but a glittering of the sword. And when it says the sword turned every way, that could be translated that it was turning itself every way, as if it was alive. Between that description and the cherubim nearby, it seems that God himself came to block the path to the tree of life. The point is straightforward. The only way back to life and happiness went through him. This is the moment Eden becomes the Garden of Eden. The Hebrew term for garden comes from something meaning to be enclosed, fenced off, or protected. When the day began, it was just Eden, a name that might come from words meaning bliss or delight, and Adam was its keeper. But when the day ended, it was a garden. It was a place with a guard. Rather than being protected by Adam, it was a place that had to be protected from him. And that's the end of the story. Adam and Eve are out on their own. God blocks the path behind them, and they have to start a new life. And for James Roos in Bodmin Jail, waiting for the judge, maybe something similar happened. He's dreading the trial. The day comes, and just like he probably suspected, the judge sentences him to death. Then, for reasons we don't know, that sentence is changed to transportation for seven years. Roos wouldn't be executed, he would be exiled, he would be deported to some far-off place. And I don't have any records on how he reacted, but I have to assume the main feeling was relief. The almost stunned reaction that life wasn't over. Today, the policy of transportation, taking criminals and placing them in a distant penal colony, is considered bad. And it was bad. But if you're staring at a noose, you probably see transportation as hope. It's true, he would have to work as prisoner labor and follow orders until his seven-year sentence was done. But there was hope that someday, if he wanted to, and if he could afford it, he might be able to come home. Roos left Bodmin for the prison ship Dunkirk, anchored about 30 miles away at Plymouth. He waited there a while until in 1787, he was put aboard the Scarborough, one of 11 ships of the First Fleet. They were the first ships to take prisoners from England, around the southern tip of Africa, past Madagascar, south of New Guinea, and finally, eight months later, to the shores of the colony of New South Wales, Australia. It was there that James Roos had to start life over. And that was no small matter. Not only did he have to start from scratch, but this new world was completely different than the old one. Roos came from Cornwall, a peninsula in southwest England that juts out into the Atlantic. It gets wind and sea mist and lots of heavy rain. 
It's warm in the summer and mild in the winter. The vegetation grows well. Today, that part of the country is a favorite retirement county. In all of England, there are only three types of snake, and only one is venomous. That should give you a good chance at farming. But now he was in Australia, and everything was different. A third of the continent is effectively desert, and 70% of the land is either arid or semi-arid. Hopefully his snake phobias were under control, because rather than the three species in England, here there were 172 different species of snake, 32 of them sea snakes, and 100 of them were venomous. Here, there were spiders who could deliver a fatal bite. 20-foot-long saltwater crocodiles swam in the rivers. There were thousands of great white sharks cruising the coastline. These were all things James Roos didn't know yet. They were all mysteries to him. He didn't know that he'd have to convince a crop to grow. He didn't know he'd have to deal with famine and drought. He didn't know he'd have to move multiple times, first to find good land, and again later when that land on the Hawkesbury River flooded. He would have to learn about life in a world where nearly everyone around was probably a former prisoner. It was a place where convicts would steal from him almost every night. James Roos didn't know those things. And Adam and Eve didn't know what was coming either. They didn't know the future waiting for them outside Eden. They had only one thing left. They had the promise that one day they would be saved. But keeping that hope alive, passing it on to their children and encouraging them that they could one day go back to Eden, that was the challenge. Because people forget things, and stories change. James Roos's story did. The adventures of the First Fleet were once the history of a penal colony. Now it's the story of 11 ships that brought the founders of a new world to Australia. Instead of punishment, it became the history of Port Jackson and the building of the city of Sydney. Instead of convicts, it's about the Washingtons and the Jeffersons of Australia. It becomes the story of James Roos marrying and having eight children and choosing to stay in Australia. It's the story of him living for nearly 40 years in that new land. He was a convict, but the story people tell about him shifted over time. Now James Roos is remembered as a pioneer, and he's honored as the father of Australian agriculture. The story shifted so obviously that even the Australian Dictionary of Biography says his importance is unduly exaggerated and romanticized. Over time, stories change. People remember ancestors as heroes and adventurers, not as petty criminals. And if you don't believe that we'd ever forget Australia was a penal colony, that this sort of history could be forgotten, just look northeast across the Pacific Ocean. The first fleet sailed to Australia in 1787 because most of the colonies in North America had rebelled and prisoners couldn't be sent there anymore. In what would become the United States, maybe one in 50 people at the time of the American Revolution was a former convict. Those prisoners blended into society, and it's almost forgotten today, only two and a half centuries later. Adam and Eve were outside the garden in a new world, and looking ahead, they would have to work against that trend to change history. They would have to work against people forgetting that God was their friend, forgetting the promise of a return to paradise. God's object lesson of the sacrifice helped, and it was passed down, but over time the meaning got confused. Sometimes it was probably an accident, but sometimes people probably changed details on purpose. 
As Adam and Eve had kids and grandkids, they had to do what they could to keep God's promise from getting lost. The story of the Garden of Eden is over. The next episode is the epilogue. It traces how that history, the garden, the trees, the snake, the sin, the sacrifice, how that story spread out around the world, and what may have happened to make sure the truth came through. In the meantime, if you have a question about something from this episode, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes with extra information and details that didn't fit into the podcast. There are also some articles and diagrams to help make sense of things and a place to subscribe so you'll know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.